it's not like delving into the ills of society exactly the way that so many shows are that are just like here's the worst thing that happened in West Virginia recently you know what I mean it's like not that I mean I I think that is I mean that's part of the draw of like that's part of the oh my god these beautiful birds yeah they're being loud as fuck shut up Good morning. Good morning. This episode, these episodes never come out in the morning. I don't know why I said that. They literally always come out at like three. Um, good afternoon. Good evening and good night. I'm, I'm here to talk about more life. I don't know what that is. Is it's that a, a reference? It's, it's actually... <laughs> I can't believe you don't get this. Um, it's actually an intro to... Or an outro to a Drake song from one of his worst and least popular albums. So... <laughs> I am like honestly really embarrassed. <laughs> oh, I'm um, very grateful that I've never liked Drake. Okay. Uh, yeah. Hi. 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 My name's Augusta. My name is Eva. And this is the Phenomena Podcast. And this week we're going to be talking about Native, as in Native American, American Indian, spirits and ghosts in the law as part of our law arc. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... This episode, I guess, is like a little more serious than other episodes, but we're still going to try to be like fun, mm-hmm. um, fun and respectful and vibeful. I feel like that's that's the mission. Um, up top, I want to share some podcasts that are made by indigenous people in America and Canada. So if you want to hear perspectives on uh, issues facing indigenous people from people that aren't white ladies um i have some recommendations for you so if you're interested in stuff like religion and science and cosmology um there's uh several podcasts there's the storyteller by without reservation so that's um indigenous stories of people uh and their relationship following jesus and christianity so that's really interesting There's also a decent amount of podcasts that are readings of um, short stories and legends. So there's Old Indian Legends, which is by the Dakota author Zitkala Saw, and you can find a lot of those online, Um, as well as H.R. Schoolcraft's American Indian Fairy Tales, which is like a series of ethnographic short stories. Um, There's the NDN Science Show, which is like indigenous perspective on like science and the world. Um, And their Halloween episodes are really good. Um, that's like, yeah, their Halloween episodes are great. There's Unreserved, which is, they have like a really amazing episode about astronomy. I think it's called We Come From the Stars. That's really good if you want to talk about like how the world works. Um, and then there's also a podcast called All My Relations. That's, I think that one's quite famous. Um, and they have some really amazing episodes about blood quantum requirements and DNA tests, as well as a really fabulous series about Mauna Kea, which is a volcano in Hawaii. Um, and there's a few other that I recommend if you're interested in politics and current events. Um, Twin Indigenous is like a really cute um, and interesting like comedy and commentary pop culture um, type podcast. Also, Break Dances with Wolves, which really <laughs> excellent title. Such a good name. It's such a good name. They also do comedy and commentary. They call themselves Just a Few Natives with Opinions and a Platform. Um, Then there's like um, a pretty intense one, but it's very interesting um, called the Truth Sharing Podcast. It's also published in French Um, and it's the like they call themselves like the living legacy of commemoration of the national inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. So that one's out of Canada Um, and they visit various uh, indigenous communities in Canada and they talk about like loss and healing and change. Uh, And then there's actually entire networks that are devoted to podcasting um, for like uh, promoting indigenous voices. So the Red Nation, um, they have a few podcasts. One's just called the Red Nation podcast. One's called Bands of Turtle Island. They have really incredible guests on there. Like they had uh, No Name on and like Arundhati Roy. Um, and they so they have like these really amazing intersectional perspectives. Um, I also highly recommend you listen to their episode about land grab universities. So obviously I am recording this podcast from one. Um, I'm on Columbia uh, 
yeah, then Media and and Dehena, sorry, stutter. Um, they do current affairs. They don't post so much anymore, but they have a really amazing episode about um, like police anxiety um, among Aboriginal communities in Australia. So that's really interesting. And then the last network I would recommend is one called the Indian and Cowboy Podcast. And that's like an entirely listener supported Indigenous podcast network. Their flagship podcast is called Red Men Laughing. And it's another sort of like culture and comedy podcast. So highly recommend that you take in those perspectives from the people that are affected by these issues. Yeah. I mean, all of that is to say that we like that those are fantastic and you should listen to them. And also that we don't have definitive or even experientially based perspectives on this, Mm -hmm. but also that I think it would be weird not to talk about it because it's an important part of ghosts and ghosts in the law in America. You know? Right, exactly. So so I was going to open with, I mean, I already just read like a really long thing, but I was going to open with this quote from a book called Disputing the Dead, um, which we'll put in the show notes. Today is our first show that actually has on-time show notes. Check out our website, <laughs> link TBA. I'll <laughs> put that in in post. Um, so in Disputing the Dead, the author whose name I already forgot says... Law exists only in a social context. Knowledge of the history and cultural foundation of the values at play aids in understanding the nature and genesis of the strategies at law employed to implement those values. As stated in the introduction, this study does not constitute a thorough analysis of the contemporary Aboriginal social dynamic in the United States, though the data used here may contribute to such an analysis. Nevertheless, certain preliminary patterns appear in the literature and are suggested by the data. Accordingly, with some reluctance and a note of caution, those apparent patterns are discussed below. So obviously, we probably wouldn't use the word aboriginal today today to talk about indigenous Americans, but I just think this is a great preface. I really think it speaks to the mission of Phenomena Podcast. This is not a comprehensive analysis. This is an episode about native ghosts in the law. Um, And like you said, like, I think it's weird to like stay out. Like, I don't think it's enough to like stay out of things you're not an expert in. So we're kind of trying to take like a manageable bite out of this topic to, you know, that's how episodes work. Just trying to like do the best we can uh, with the best intentions and, you know, encourage people to be curious about like important stuff like this and pursue knowledge and enjoy learning because learning is going to make the world a better place. (laughs) You're welcome for that. That's my sound bite. Let's discuss some apparent patterns. So there's a lot of prefacing to this episode and like obviously that's because of like all the like heavy, heavy context that goes into it. But something that's really important to understand when you talk about NAGPRA is to understand um, the change in um, these movements of like they call them revitalization. Wait, do you want to define NAGPRA? Oh, yeah. Okay. Sorry. NAGPRA. I actually don't even remember what it stands for. It's the national. Okay. NAGPRA is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. So it was passed in 1988, I believe. 1990. 1990. 1988 was when a book came out about it. Okay. So it was already got one thing wrong. What's the time? 14 minutes and nine seconds. No, no, no. This is good. This is why we got each other. Yeah, exactly. So NAGPRA uh, passed in 1990. So Carter signed it into law, pretty sure. Why look it up when I can just be pretty sure? Um, (laughs) So basically what it was, was it was after an intense amount of um, pressure from indigenous activists um, and some allies, it uh, was an act that was passed to basically... uh, return remains that were housed in um, museums and stuff like that and going forward to uh, commit to returning these remains to um, the descendants. So obviously you can already tell that there's a lot of problems with that, but we'll get to it when we get to it. We'll talk about the limitations of it when we get to 1990. Yeah, it, it well, okay. It requires federal agencies and, yes, and institutions so that receive federal funding to return cultural items. So that exactly. includes, well, anyway, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting. I, so, so yes, it is, uh, it's actually only federal, so it does not apply to any private institutions and it doesn't apply to, uh, any other institutions that don't receive federal funding. So, yeah. So I think it's important to understand as we work up to that sort of like the different, um, movements in revitalization and revival, which are like, 
um, the sort of like indigenous movements to both not just preserve, but uh, invigorate and uh, aid in the flourishing the, of. Yeah, I don't know what the verb for pride is, but like, you know, celebrate um, yeah. uh, traditions. So in early, the characteristics of like what they would call like early indigenous revitalization movements um, were... Uh, much more like direct uh what we would now call like direct action so this would be like open uh like open conflict and rebellion so like uh i'm trying to think the like like the uh the new mexican pueblo rebellion for example would be one and these are very like discrete movements right so obviously indigenous religion maybe not obviously <laughs> but obviously indigenous religious beliefs and practices just as indigenous ethnicities and communities right we can't understand them as monolithic or even like connected all the time necessarily like mm -hmm. for example it was at, like it's estimated that in pre-contact quote-unquote pre-contact north america there were upwards of 1900 discrete dialects of um, indigenous languages. So like dialects that cannot be understood in other dialects, that's a lot of languages. So um, yeah, I mean, it's you know. like, it's my sister just took a, a class on the history of, uh, I think the teacher called it American Indians, but yeah, of indigenous people in the United States. And one of his metaphors was he was saying like, I mean, you, it's literally, it's like Europe. Yeah. Like it's literally like Europe. Like you wouldn't it's like, like bigger than Europe. <laughs> yeah. But like the way that the way that the history of Europe is the history of like larger empires, you know, mm -hmm. dividing up smaller like ethnic groups and then, mm -hmm. you know, recombining them and their heritage and tradition mixing and then separating out again. And those that are at the farthest extremes, like maybe they don't make contact for like 200 years and then they mm -hmm. do again. And that like it's, you know. It's like a massive, it's like a massive complex history with various groups within them that merge and mix and are overlapping but discrete. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. So a lot of the like early revitalization movements and early like rebellions, when I say early, I mean like 18th century, um, were sort of like more discreet and they were more concentrated and they were like uh, enacted by more... Um, more individual communities. Um, so then, but then as sort of communication became more readily available to everybody, basically, again, we're like coming back to this time of like the mid 1800s um, of, of like, you know, the telegraph and printing presses and like all these other things finally kind of like disseminating across America. Um, sort of these like more movements of the 19th and 20th, 20th centuries have more of a solidarity in uh, like identity and movement. And this is sometimes known as pan-Amerindianism, pan which is what I'm going to call it because it's also sometimes called pan-Indianism. But I think it is confusing to use the word Indian and also like not exactly right. And I know there's a lot of different... Um, different opinions and preferences for that. So, but I'm going to call it pan-Amerindianism today. Uh, and that's the sort of idea that there is an, that there is a pan-Amerindian experience and a pan-Amerindian identity um, and, you know, whatever, life. So, yeah. So again, important to note that like indigenous practices are not static. They can't be held as a singular thing. They're not a monolith. Um, but that is what makes it so interesting that that's how the law treats it, right? So some, the way that the law treats indigenous practices, especially indigenous, sorry, indigenous spiritual practices, especially indigenous burial practices, has contributed massively to the codification of pan-Amerindianism. So it began as something that was um, like in these grassroots movement of um, indigenous activists, of these people who were like, hey, in a way, like we all have really similar experiences, like mm -hmm. this colonial genocide that we've all been through. Also on a physical level, like we've been like trafficked and forced across the country into kind of one area, like, right. you know, Oklahoma, other uh, like reservations and things like that. Yeah. It's like 
maybe it would be beneficial to our cause to have this idea of like, yeah, this Pan-Amerindian solidarity. And then the law, basically the way any laws came into being in the 19th and 20th century, like really solidified this and like basically held this idea that there was there could be or there was like a Pan-Amerindian tradition or definition of sacredness, right? Mm. Um I do have a quick tangent about the word tradition. So if you have anything to say about what I just said, speak now or I will go on a tangent about the word tradition. I want to hear about the word tradition, definitely. I just want to pop in and say that I think that it's really interesting to hear you say that it was that it like in a way it is the colonialism which unifies the Pan-Amerindian experience. That mm-hmm. like it's not that the pre-existing cultural practices are um or like spiritual practices, I guess, in this context are similar to the point of being the same. It's mm-hmm. that there is a united oppress. There's like a an oppressive force that unifies and unites. Right. I think underscoring that point is important for understanding how these laws apply and are applied because you have to consider that the that the judiciary branch of the government, the United States government, is the decision-making arm of the oppressive force in opposition to these practices. Right, right. It's so interesting. And and we'll go into a couple more books that talk about that, but it's like yeah, it's it's very weird. I don't know. In the way that like not weird, but in the way that like history, they say history is like written by the victor, but I prefer to use the word oppressor. But you know, <laughs> in the way that like history is kind of written by the like oppressor, like this wasn't true until and we kind of talked about it last week, like how many times do you have to say something is true before it becomes essentially true? Like basically like I think NAGPRA was ended up being the culmination of a series of laws over time that treated um, all indigenous experience as having um, like a common definition of sacredness and traditions in the context of this podcast, which is the supernatural. Um, so, okay. So my rant about tradition. So Go we don't use it. that word a lot on this podcast. Listeners may have noticed. Um, and that's cause it sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it just is like not a good word and it means nothing and like puts a frame where there is no picture. Um, so I highly recommend anyone reading. I have a lot of recommended reading today. Highly recommend that you read the opinion piece by Sean Mallon. Um, it's published by the Museum of New Zealand, I believe. It's called Why We Should Beware of the Word Traditional. Um, and he has this really wonderful quote from Albert Went in it. Albert Went is a Samoan um, poet. So Albert Went said, I came to feel very uncomfortable with terms such as traditional, folk history, folk art. Colonial scholars and researchers used them whenever they referred to us, but not to their cultures, to their cultures. Such terms, I concluded, were part and parcel of the Eurocentric colonial vocabulary. Traditional inferred our cultures were or are so tradition-bound they were static and slow to change, that they weren't dynamic and growing and changing, that because they were slow to change and fixed in history, they were simple and easy to understand. Traditional also had implications about how we were viewed as people, even to the extent that because we were tradition-bound, we behaved out of habit and past practice and were slow to adapt to other ways or change our own ways, that we didn't want to think for ourselves or were incapable of individual thinking and expression. Yeah, I think that part of, I think that's a lovely quote and I'm glad you pulled it. And I think that part of what I find interesting about that and what nags me about the word tradition and the way that it's deployed, especially in anthropology, and we haven't really done a deep dive into our perspective on anthropology as a colonial tradition. And I'm sure we'll get Mm. into that over the course of the show more so. Mm -hmm. But part of what I struggle with about the idea of tradition is that it really does play into the mythic past, capital M, capital P, mythic past, Mm. because I think to create something as traditional is to one imply that it has like a high up part in a hierarchy or structure that it has existed previously Mm -hmm. as in oh like you know in the English tradition of poetry it's like 
you can use it in that context to refer to just a thing that has been happening in the past mm-hmm. and like that continues to happen when it's deployed for the like dominant culture. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, the English tradition of poetry. Oh, like, you know, the in there's a like, oh, in you know, in academia, there's a tradition of doing this. Or like, yeah, this is one of our college traditions. Like we all go streaking around the fountain or whatever. But as soon mm-hmm. as it's deployed to another group, mm-hmm. it takes on this sinister tone of like, mm-hmm. well, in their traditional practice, it almost feels like it's like one level away from being like what's the word? Like uh I think it's a little coded for like savagery. I was about to say that. Like, I think it's a way to be like it. That's a that's a practice that I think is um, archaic, but that's none of my business. Yeah, non-modern. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's a way to be like, oh, like or yeah, or even like savage, like you said, like like. So, yeah. So I agree. I agree. I think the word tradition is like. It, it looks down the nose, definitely. Like, But it's interesting because at the same time, I think that there's like an opposing impulse, or at least I feel an opposing impulse, which is to deal with like the very modern and the very contemporary and to like, you know, react against that and to be like, well, mm-hmm. it's not static. It's not that. Yeah. And that can almost... I don't want to push it over into the civilizing impulse right. of like, I'll probably cut this out too, but just like, you know, you don't want to move it over into like, well, but everybody's the same. We're all just the same. Like it almost becomes melting right. pot ideology Yeah, to deny, like the word tradition I think can, can serve to do what we're talking about, but also you need a way to refer to past practices that remain spiritually important you know right right i think that's part of why sometimes people use the sacred instead because it's like the sacred is something that like does imply that it's been i guess sacred and like kind of there's it's not in the definition but like it implies that it's been sacred for a while i don't know it's really i mean it's really difficult to say i mean that's one of the main issues in this um like revitalization and um, revival movements in America is yeah. like not Let's everyone agrees with like the Pan Amerindian sort of like narrative, quote unquote, 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 um, because of the reasons that Albert Went gave. You know what I mean? Like this is sort of the same idea, like that these things might be fixed in history. And also, I think it's really um, striking that he says like it assumes that people who have traditions, quote unquote, like behave out of habit or like don't have like a they're not deliberate in their action you know what I mean like um whereas lots of things that are repeated over time such as a tradition would be like actually are highly deliberate and you're highly engaged in that moment you know what I mean like you're highly engaged in what you're doing in these um whether they're like parties ceremonies whatever rituals rites rites of passage etc like they are you know you're heavily in that moment oh 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 my last thing is like so not everyone agrees with this but it is the way that indigenous revitalization and revival movements in the united states interact with the law and actually in a way it's the only way in which they can because the law especially like constitutionally and constitutional interpretation which is like a lot of um what these like religious um freedom movements are about tends to favor language that like classifies rather than specifies Mm, you know what i mean like it's a lot easier to issue a decision that prohibits for example like discrimination on the basis of gender or whatever the language is there but um than to actually specify like every behavior that's illegal right you know what i mean like um so yeah let's uh tell me about ghost dancing and that part of the revival uh, movement. Well, I was just going to talk about the very a very specific. I think it just related to what we were just saying about the idea of tradition, which is why I wanted to bring it in because I think it's a yeah. really interesting example of how that idea can cut both ways. So, mm-hmm. what I'm looking at right here is um, the Ghost Dance of 1890, which was. Mm-hmm. I hear they call it a new religious movement, like classifying it as an alternative spirituality. I think you could also Mm -hmm. say that it was like a form of indigenous belief updated for the more modern circumstances, which I think is an interesting part of 
what we were saying about tradition not being static and not being something that's like done out of habit um really quick fun fact one of the reasons that it's classified as an indigenous revival movement and not a new religion is because it incorporates use of hallucinogenic drugs that are illegal in um spiritual practices outside of tribal lands that's interesting i didn't know that yeah, you can get that out. Obviously, it's heavily nose. It's just like not necessarily relevant to this episode, but it is interesting. It's really interesting. Um, so the ghost dance of 1890 was practiced by the Northern Paiute by, uh, was proposed by a spiritual leader named Wovaka, was renamed Jack Wilson, which is so brutal. Um, <laughs> that is brutal. It's so bad. Uh, so the idea was, his idea was that this dance, which... Um, is based on the circle dance, which is a traditional mm. chain dance. So these, uh, the Northern Paiute are in like the Great Basin, Eastern California, Western Nevada, Southeast Oregon, like that strip along there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a traditional practice, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, a dance called a circle dance, which is basically what it sounds like uh a circle semicircle, musical accompaniment rhythmic instruments singing dancing um it's it's ancient and when i say it's ancient i mean like it's you know it's documented from the very beginning of what's quote-unquote considered contact um and this is a very specific updated form of it the ghost dance which is specifically meant to reunite the spirits of the dead with the living bring them to Mm -hmm. fight on behalf of uh, Native American indigenous groups end westward mm-hmm. expansion and bring peace, prosperity, and unity to Native American peoples throughout the region. So not just to the Northern Paiute people. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting example of what you're talking about. Yeah. Both Pan Amerindian solidarity and the updating of tribal practices for anti-colonial and quas- like cross-cultural cooperative movements because I think that it takes seriously the importance of tradition and religion for this group and also takes seriously the threat like the existing continuing threat of colonialism and colonization Mm. and it has some interesting the way that it's viewed under the law is very interesting yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely like a huge turning point, like you said, like um, of like coming together under this narrative of Pan Amerindianism. And it's also one of the things that eventually contributed to the NAGPRA legislation, which obviously was almost 100 years later. But, um, you know, it takes a lot, a lot, a long time for these things to move forward. And it was um, very much an like a inspiration and basis for some of the like, really uh, primary activists involved in pushing for NAGPRA, which, to be clear, they didn't push for what NAGPRA ended up being, they pushed for attempting what NAGPRA attempts and ultimately kind of fails. Yeah, they pushed for something and then NAGPRA came about, as is so often the case with activists pushing for movement by the government and the government making a shitty-ass, lame-ass law. (laughs) Yeah, the government's like, well, I guess, like, I guess. So yeah, yeah, with naming a law something that sounds good and then the text of the law is utterly unenforceable and complex to the point that nobody can fucking do anything about it, as is yeah, so exactly. often the case. Exactly. So that's kind of like the path that um, these like uh, movements took towards NAGPRA. Um, and I guess... The next person who's really important to talk about, we haven't talked about a lot of specific activists, but uh, there is a, hold on. Okay. There is a woman called Maria Pearson. um, And she uh, was really like, they call her like 
sometimes they call her the Rosa Parks of Nagpra. Sometimes they call her the founding mother of the modern Indian repatriation movement, which repatriation being specifically the um, movement to have uh, remains and artifacts returned to indigenous communities. Um, so hold on, thinking, processing, loading, buffering. Um, okay, before I actually, before I move on to Pearson, um, I want to like briefly highlight the fact that the ghost dance, one of the core things about it was that it was intended to, uh, return or summon, uh, spirits of the dead to the living so while i think that not everything like needs to or always can be fully understood in an intellectual context in the intellectual context of this episode um i think that's like a very obvious demonstration of the anxieties of being um separated from the dead or separated from um or a, like yeah a perceived and very real and felt uh anxiety of separation from your ancestors and from your dead and from your cultural artifacts so pearson i'm gonna read a quote from this really excellent dissertation wait can i just say one more thing about that yeah i'm so sorry about what you just said it is an example of that. It's also conversely, I think this is what you're about to get into, but it's a really good example of the anxiety of white settlers about those who have been displaced and died because the name ghost dance is of of course given to it by white people. It's not what it was named in the indigenous tongue. Right. (laughs) True. (laughs) True. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of the words in this one are like double speak, you know, Um, or I'm sorry, double think. Which one is which? Anyway, they're dystopian levels of mischaracterization. Right. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So Pearson. Let me read you a quote. Yes. Yeah. Let me read you this quote from um, this dissertation. And I think uh, I'm trying to cut it down in my head right now, actually. Well, I'm going to read the whole thing. And if in post it makes sense to like cut parts of it, just cut parts of it. Right. Okay. So. Pearson marks the exceptional treatment of the native remains as discrimination, not only because the bones of, quote, white people, unquote, were given proper reburial, but also because it, quote, goes against all our beliefs, unquote. Inferred here is perhaps a sense that those beliefs are religious or spiritual in nature, pertaining to the rights, R-I-T-E-S, and rights, R-I-G-H-T-S, of the dead. Pearson expresses also an expectation that those beliefs are and should be protected. The our in her sentence might be interpreted to encompass native beliefs in general, thereby including in its ambit the beliefs of the native people whose bones were on their way to the state archaeologist's office. In other words, for Pearson, those people, though no longer living, were the bearers of certain rights. Again, it is worth noting, in the ontology that Pearson is espousing, the dead are rights-bearing and can have those rights violated. Mm. I emphasize this point in particular because it is the fundamental ground of a great deal of repatriation activism, including the imaginative basis of Walter's novel, which we'll get to that novel. It is also the problematic at the heart of NAGPRA. On the one hand, the framework of rights has been a successful means to repatriation and a victory for many Native communities via NAGPRA. And then this part, this speaks to what you were saying earlier. On the other, the discourse of rights is part and parcel of capitalist neoliberal structures that have instantiated, that's a hard word, that have instantiated the very violences and thefts that NAGPRA seeks to correct. Right. Totally. Yeah. Again, yeah, again we have this issue of like, well, this is Yeah, like this is the problem with that one of the many problems with Nagpra is it's like um that super famous quote that's like dismantling the house with the master's tools. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I mean, how much can this really help when it's like, okay, well, within the structure that we've created that essentially is designed to destroy you, we will give you this little thing that doesn't work at all. And even if it did work, is still entirely within the structure um, and absolutely entrenched in the bureaucratic processes and like fuckery and red tape and like inaccessibility of this 
system. Yeah. And like rights specifically, the idea, I mean, like I'm thinking of like human rights and the concept of human rights violation is Mm -hmm. so often in at least the 20th century from what I know about this is such a, uh, like a coded way of doing other business. Right. And the idea of like universal human rights and the idea that like Mm -hmm. your human rights are being violated is like Mm -hmm. a way of codifying a specific set of moral ethical principles that are not necessarily universally agreed upon. Like I'm thinking of like the UN and the League of Nations and various like neo-colonial international bodies that work on a Mm -hmm. human rights framework. Mm -hmm. And so especially when that's applied, you know, to the interior, to the United States. Yeah. um, I think that rights this doesn't use the language of human rights, but I think that rights specifically when they're talking about neoliberal capital, you know, rights can be given and rights can be taken away. Right. Exactly. I, to me, it's like, I feel like rights, um, on the surface seem to tell you what you are entitled to, but actually, in my opinion, they outline what you're not entitled to. Even the idea that you can have certain rights is an infringement on like just absolute vibing <laughs> like <laughs> but you know what I mean like even the idea of it's like well this is what you can have here's a list of things that you can have and right. here they are which is what it's the like, law well, is but right exactly yeah like and that's the structure I mean those are the the things the the written lists of things that people can and can't have is what created the genocide of these people that they're now saying is like oh well but you can have some of these things back well i mean i think i think you know violence created i mean yeah but it said you can have america manifest destiny you white men coming in you can have america and then it's like okay we'll add another part to the list that says that the people that we took america from (laughs) and i'll get to that part also more about uh uh, how NAGPRA is a list of things you can and cannot have. Well, let's, yeah, let's pop, let's pop off. So, so yeah, so so where ghosts factor into the Rosa Parks of NAGPRA there is that um, Pearson, one of the primary, well, just to be totally cynical, one of the primary narratives in her employ towards seeking this was a story she told about hearing her grandmother's spirit speak to her in the wind, mm. right? Which isn't to say um, that that is that she had a cynical perspective of that, or even that I have a cynical perspective of that, but just from a mechanical function of how laws are lobbied for, or et cetera, et cetera, that was one of the um, narratives that really pushed towards this um, pushed towards this legislation being written. And in um, disputing the dead, um, the author says. Uh, these are a lot of quotes in this episode, but it's because I'm not the expert. The people who wrote these books are. It's respectful. Um, so he says, the supposed, or she, I actually have no idea. The supposed disparity in worldviews usually offered is roughly that. So this is the crux of the uh, issue here. Indians, not a word I'd use his word, believe the individual human spirit maintains a relationship with its earthly remains until those remains totally decompose, and that European-American professionals, on the other hand, view the remains as inanimate objects for study with little regard for the human beings that the remains represent. So again, not universal, but that's the sort of, that's the idea that the law-making bodies is seeing in the Pan-Amerindian movement. They're like, oh, this is a problem because the European-American professionals view the remains as inanimate objects for study and the Pan-Amerindian movements view it as still having a human spirit. Which is just, like, so fucked off. I mean, like... (laughs) (laughs) Just, like... I mean, yeah. (laughs) Just, like... It's just so fucked off because it's, like you guys feel the same fucking way right like as we've talked about many times on this show right like 
it's, you're obsessed with the like the rights of your own dead. Yeah, and buried near the right. this and buried near the that and cremation versus interment and what kind of, you know, whatever. And like, what are the death rights and where are we going to bury it? And is it going to be in a cemetery? And what kind of a wake are we going to have? Are we going to have a funeral? Who's going to be there? Are you going to be there? What are you wearing? Are we wearing black? Are we wearing white? Like death rights yeah. are so important in every culture. The idea that they're that like. Well, actually, in the West, we have more of a scientific approach to these sorts of things. And we are not savages. We believe that the dead are just dead and we can study them. It's like only when they're not, you're <laughs> dead, you fucking bitch. <laughs> yeah, it's so you fucking bitch ass off. loser. It's so fucked it's off. so fucked off. So we have two. So we have now we have two uh, really important uh, ghost bodies, uh, body in the sense of a social actor that can be individuals or a group we have the ghost dance uh social actor and now we have um maria pearson's grandmother right these are both ghosts who have whose presence has encouraged the united states to pass a law and then the third one we have um comes from this was right but this was like right before nagpra was written and signed so it was like 88 um a writer she was a pawnee oto missouri writer named anna lee walters and she published a novel called ghost singer Mm. are you familiar Mm -mm. great title okay so ghost singer is quote a mystery set in the smithsonian archives that launched a scathing critique of the museological acquisition and storage practices that precipitated the federal law in the novel what right in the novel white museum representatives who are involved with the curation and archiving of native remains are haunted by the specters of native people Mm. and several when they cannot or refuse to understand the demands of their ghostly persecutors are killed love so yeah so then the novel um through these ghostly characters um outlines these sort of um i guess you would say like the goals or like the demands of the repatriation, um, right. like, you know, um, movement. Yeah. Um, right. So, and then, and so this is our, these are our third, um, these are our third ghost actors, right? We have our ghost dance. We have Maria Pearson's grandmother. And now we have the ghosts from this novel, right. which I think is also interesting because, it does show like i don't know what to say about the fact that the people who wrote and signed nagpra basically saw a novel with hypothetical ghost characters as being equivalent to actual people that their government had murdered and buried in unmarked mass graves they read the novel you're sure they read it it's like almost word for word what nagpra ends up being so here's what i will say about that based on some of the texts that you sent me, which were about the American imagination and what the idea of Mm -hmm. the Indian ghost does in the American imagination. Mm -hmm. This is quoting the papers. I think that there were two major, like two major thrusts to these various dissertations and articles that I read. One being Mm -hmm. that the idea of the uh, native American indigenous ghost which was created especially in the Western, Western as in the genre of media. Yes. Served to preempt and naturalize massacre, murder, and genocide because it implied that it was inevitable and was already going to happen. Like if you write in basically dead people coming back to your fiction you are implying the inevitability of it and the eventual victory of the white man over these spirits which at the time of writing and publishing are not spirits are living people right and that that continues into the modern day in the like people flippantly saying like well all of america is basically native american burial ground it's like that's interesting I think it's just a Native American ground. Right. I mean, there's there's lots right. of living indigenous people. Right. So that that is one of the naturalization functions of it. But then the other side of the article was saying that when written by 
indigenous people or people who claim indigenous heritage or that's one of their like major concerns in their writing and work that it can actually serve the opposing function which i think is part of what you're gesturing to which is that it can serve to it can serve the more direct function of haunting which is instead of giving permission or like giving naturalization to death it can remind of a past which is unburied, deinterred, unresolved, mm-hmm. extends into the present, right? Like history is mm-hmm. a forward-facing force. I think that mm-hmm. the implication being that that's something that the, the figure of the ghost can also do. And so I see both of those things happening in what you're talking about. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's exactly right. And I think it segues nicely into sort of my last section, which is like, so yeah, we've met our ghost actors. Um, I highly recommend actually reading Ghost Singer. It's really good. And also if you read Ghost Singer and then you read NAGPRA, which is pretty long, admittedly, but like it's hard to read laws, but like you will see that like the demands that are made by these spirits, like it's Almost like somebody was like, oh, okay, so that's what all the Pan Amerindian movement wants. Let me write that down. Right. Like, and like converts it into a lot, which is one of the things that is so powerful about ghost stories, right? Yeah. I mean, they really show in a lot of ways what people need, what people want, and what people are experiencing, even if that's a fictional novel. So, yeah. So, NAGPRA. <laughs> so, some of the many limitations of NAGPRA. First of all, it assumes a pan-Amerindian inheritance uh, or solidarity that is not real or feasible, right? Um, uh, Second of all, it's really only federal, as you mentioned at the top of the episode. Like, it really only covers federal spending and, like, the Smithsonian and the Museum of Natural History that are in this book. Um, There's also, like, a... Right. So then per what you were saying about Native American ground, what I wrote that down while you were saying it, because I was like, oh, I want to talk about this. Um, It basically makes it legal for them to have stolen the land, but illegal for them to have bothered the spirits who are there. Right. Because it's like anything we find while we're tilling our land that we stole and now is mine we will try to mail it back to you, basically. And trying to get it back to you is there's this incredible tension of the burden of proof in NAGPRA. Mm. It's, there are varying passages, and I wish I had clipped them. I'm sorry that I didn't. But there are varying passages that are not quite contradictory, but it's like this, constant flip-flopping of who the burden of proof is on Mm. to claim these remains, right? So is it on the government to exhaust resources? Not exhaust, I'm sorry. Is it on the government to expend resources? Is it on these individual research institutions to expend resources um, to find the people to whom these bones, quote-unquote, belong? Or is it something that you, if you are certain that there are remains or artifacts that belong to your family, you, is is the onus on you as an individual to be like lobbying or petitioning or like, you know, communicating with these, um, with these institutions. And how do you do that? I mean, if you know that a burial site of your family, which they are continually, um, being dug up. I mean, this law came out in 1990, uh, right? I mean, basically, I mean, every time that every major construction project encounters remains, right? Whether those remains are relatively contemporary, whether they're ancient, like almost every project encounters them, right? And so then it's like, if you know that a burial site where your family was buried or where your loved one was buried, like, I mean, what? how do you even go about – it's just, like, impossible. I mean, it's just, like, farcical yeah. that there's any responsibility. But, of course, there is. I, I, I don't know. It's right. like I feel very complicated about it. Well, but it's, like 
so, okay, you are a brancher, an arm of the federal government, and you have a warehouse, like in California, for mm-hmm. example, say, this is this is theoretical, but just to speak to your concern, I think it's theoretical mm-hmm. with, with real applications. Mm-hmm. You work for the California, like for a federal arm of the government based in California, and California is a place that is one of the one of the th- states that has like the highest population of indigenous people by number, mm-hmm. not by percentage, but by number. Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously it's like one of the final frontiers in Western expansion, which is super fraught and super haunted. Mm-hmm. I say in my California accent. <laughs> and it's like super fraught. It's like really crazy. Um, but anyway, so you're a part of, you work for the federal government and you are in charge of a warehouse that contains many items dug up in federal construction projects. And mm-hmm. in those are artifacts and bones mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, f- like items that you think and that scholarship has shown to be funeral related. Mm-hmm. What's your responsibility under NAGPRA? What are you meant to do with that? Are you meant to try and track down the descendants right. of the dead? Mm-hmm. Because... That seems to be the most utopian version. Right. But at the same time. There would be someone who was paid, had a full-time job, uh, salary plus benefits, who was working towards trying to repair, like, the emotional fractures that have been caused by this. But that's not what it is. It's not truth and reconciliation. Mm -mm. It's just if you are of indigenous native descent and you know that the Smithsonian has your fill-in-the-blank you may be able to sue them. Like you may be able to get that back. Right, right. And there's no, there's not really anything that, you can't even really sue for damages either. They just are supposed to. No, because the damages are incalculable. Calculable. Yeah, the damages are incalculable. So there's four things they are supposed to do under NAGPRA. Um, Those things are going forward, catalog any remains that come up, retroactively catalog i'm sorry when i say you i mean inst- research institutions yeah. are supposed to the do research it. institution of the coffee shop i work for yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. if if nagpra applies to you these are the four things you're supposed to be doing you're supposed to be going forward keeping careful track and record cataloging remains that um are uncovered two you're supposed to be retroactively trying to identify and catalog remains that you already are in possession of. Three, you are supposed to be contacting tribal organizations or indigenous individuals and communities that you believe these artifacts and remains are associated with. And four, you are supposed to be facilitating the return of those items. So there's a zillion problems with that, right? (laughs) Two of the things I want to highlight that are problems with that. Um, first of all, what the fuck? Second of all, some of these things are so, again, again, like there's this bizarre idea in kind of inherent in NAGPRA where it's like, oh, just like find an indigenous like body of governance and like mail them a bunch of bones. Right. Like as though there is this united, you know what I mean? Like as as though there really can be any attribution of particular remains to basically what remains of like um, indigenous, like social and governmental structures. Like, and like, are you sending it to the family? Are you sending it? Are you sending it to like the, um, the tribal board? So one, I mean, just the identifying process is like the fact that you think somebody could do that is like, insane like that's just uh, so difficult and um especially everything that's after everything that's been done I mean you know and then the second thing is some of these remains are so ancient this is exactly what I was gonna bring essentially up. don't have affiliation it is foobar these were like some the trying to attempt to trace some sort of chain cus, chain of custody it's what for foobar Fubar? Fucked up beyond all recognition. Ah, I've never heard that. 
Oh, it's like a World War II term. That's so funny. Okay, I'm sorry. Keep Fubar going. and uh, uh, snafu. That's awesome. Situ- situation normal, all fucked up. Um, yeah, it's like a dumb. Anyway, yeah, it's like the process of the yeah, just like the the, the depth of history that you're looking at right. when you look at remains. The idea that you would be able to go backwards somehow with like literally no information. These are remains that have been put in a shoebox in someone's basement. Like Fubar. Like it's just there's no it's But I wanna okay, I I hear you, but at the same time, that can actually be, I think, really powerful. Like that actually can create a really interesting and really powerful claim to indigenous history and sovereignty. Because like okay, like the Kennewick man. Mm-hmm. Like this is one of the big examples of Nagpra mm-hmm. is that the like the Kennewick man is is some sort of like they say it's a prehistoric Paleo American man. Yeah, it's one of the most complete ancient skeletons ever found. Yeah, and it's like nine thousand years old yeah right yes or something 10 yes and it was found i mean they don't know radiocarbon dating is like not exactly that precise but yeah around there it was found in kennewick washington rep rep southwest banks the it was found in kennewick washington and it's it was found on federally recognized tribal land right and because this skeleton was of, this was in 1986, because mm-hmm. the skeleton is of great age <laughs> and like that makes it incredibly scientifically valuable, archaeologists mm-hmm. claimed, it's not really fair to say that they claimed it because it's so scientifically valuable. I think that's one possible explanation, but it is, it is true that this is a skeleton that's so ancient, it's hard to realistically connect it to modern indigenous mm-hmm. tribes. Mm-hmm. They said that, like various archaeologists and forensic specialists were like, "Well, it's really scientifically valuable. We want to be able to study it. Also, it's like a bajillion years old, so it's not really fair to say that it's part of like an, a modern tribe. And it's it wasn't, you mm-hmm. know, this the skeleton is not actually like part. Like it's not the victim of." colonialism like it's not like this is a return this return would in no way be a gesture to that history of violence except that it's been deinterred by Mm -hmm. this colonial government right but so like you know there's like this long struggle over the kennewick man it's studied it's displayed museums whatever and then in 2015, so there's a tribe that claims ancestry to the Kennewick man. They mm-hmm. offer up a DNA test. In 2015, they find that the Kennewick man is more closely related to that tribe than any other living population. In 2016, the House and Senate passes legislation to return the bones to the Columbia Basin. And in 2017, 200 members of five Columbia Basin tribes do a sacred burial and rebury mm. the Kennewick man. And that's all. that all happens under... Nagpra. So, in another way, even though that is what did you say, F- Fupa, Fubar, fucked up beyond all recognition. Even though I, love it that, I love that you're learning this term today. It's a great term, even though it's it a is really Fubar, great term. Fucked up beyond all recognition. When it works, it seems like it offers this incredibly powerful. I mean, like that's so powerful that you would re- that the Kennewick man was returned under this law. I don't know. Damn, I think you're very right. And I would like, that's such like a cool note to close on, but I had something else really depressing. Say it, say it, say it, say it, bring it. No, I think that's fabulous. There's a really good um, code switch episode on that. Speaking of podcasts Um, from NPR. I also Uh, want to say while I'm doing, while I'm saying things that have succeeded about it, 3,000 or 32,000 individuals returned to tribes, uh, 870,000 funerary objects, 120,000 unassociated funerary objects, 2,500 sacred objects have been returned. So that's the scale that we're looking at with this act of return to that's incredible. tribal land and tribal practice. That's really incredible. Thank you for for bringing those statistics. That's really amazing. That is really amazing. And I'm genuinely glad for it. 
I still feel like I hate that. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a drop in the bucket. That's the thing. Is yeah, that, like, it's a drop those in the numbers bucket. Exactly. Are, seem huge. But then when you compare them to yeah. the scale of, de- of the death and of genocide, death. Yeah. it's nothing. I'm just yeah. like. And the emotional toll that that takes when you're, when you're cultural inheritance is not just lost and not just lessened but like actively systemically deliberately maliciously ripped from you and stomped on in front of your face and then returned you in a box yeah after also you can still fuck all do fuck all whatever you want with the shit right. before you return it while you're waiting well and that's the other like, thing about kennewick man they had time to yeah is that before they, returned they just it. like yeah they studied it and i think they cast it like they copied it oh, I'm but sure. i don't know i'm sure yeah i'm sure yeah the cast is in so, i think the cast is in the natural history museum not to my knowledge okay, never mind or, or if it is it's in the uh archives and it's not on display right. because that room hasn't been updated since a long time ago in fact in fun fact lucy the like super early yeah, yeah. uh humanoid skeleton they have identified two bones in that that actually belong to a chimpanzee and are not lucy's bones <laughs> but they have not taken them out of the display case because right. of all the red tape and like money it would cost um so you so yeah okay go for it no you go for it i was just gonna say you were gonna say something depressing <laughs> yeah so my depressing thing to close i'm sorry because like that is heartening and i like really hope that people are able to get some sort of emotional and spiritual closure from nagpra and i think there have been cases where it has had a positive outcome NAGPRA only applies to single burials that are, quote, part of the death rite or ceremony of a culture, unquote. Right. So what does that mean they don't cover? Everything else? (laughs) Mass graves. Right. Which, as you said about Kennewick Man, it's kind of like, it's amazing that Kennewick Man was returned, Kennewick Man was returned um because he is he was interred as part of a death rite or ceremony of a culture which is what the language of nagpra that makes it religious and cultural right but that means that battlefields um trench graves mass pyres p-y-r-e all those other things there's no obligation to return those remains or artifacts and there's no right that living indigenous people have to those remains or artifacts even though those were the remains that were i mean those are the vast majority of remains a and b those are the vast majority of remains that were of people that were killed in colonial violence yeah and it it denies, you know, it like creates this divide between ancient history and modern history in which the things that the mm-hmm. government is required to return are the things that they didn't create to begin with often. Right. Literally. Right. Like they're like, it, it, and that's what I mean when it said like, it makes it legal for them to have stolen this land, right. but illegal for them to have, right. So it makes it completely legal for them to have, well, you know what I mean? To have massacred all these people, to have committed this genocide. But then the illegal part was, basically them disrupting the only thing that they could understand as basically the illegal part was the only thing that like is directly translates to something that would also affect white people in America, which is like, Hey, if someone dug up your grandma after you had a funeral, you'd be bummed out, bro. And it's like, yeah, you're right. We should send them back those grandmas. So yes, that's, the vibe that's how ghosts wrote a law and fear american fear of these quote-unquote native spirits um coming to haunt and kill our anthropologists enacted a law i mean among other things obviously i do believe that there's elements of like sympathy and concern and there are um, you know, white ally activists who are really genuinely pushing to heal to the best of anyone's ability, these emotional wounds. Um, 
But uh, yeah, dead people played a huge role <laughs> in dead spirits played a huge role in crafting this national legislation and play a huge role in the American imagination of what the indigenous and Indian populations are and have since yeah. the very beginning of this country. Yeah. Uh, before this country was in a country, it was just a fucking backwater bunch of colonies. No disrespect. okay no i'm kidding Um, (laughs) Uh, i mean yeah yeah, i'm in western territory so it's a little disrespect disrespect all the way down bro washington (laughs) oregon it's fucking disrespect all the way down disrespect all the way down um imagine having cities that are planned just kidding holyoke massachusetts first ever planned city allegedly allegedly Oh, my my closing thoughts on this are Mm -hmm. i think that there's a lot to cover with this and there's a lot of the breadth and depth of what native ghosts and indigenous ghosts do in the American imagination is so vast. And to me as a researcher daunting that Mm -hmm. I think that we have covered only a tiny segment of it. And I hope that we've done justice to what we've covered. This is an issue that we'll continue to touch on over the course of the show because it's such an important part of ghosts in the American imagination. Mm -hmm. But I hope that in this specific context, you as a listener came away with more understanding of this law. I think that there are some things about this law that are probably really great for those who are the beneficiaries of it. I think that what I want to kind of summarize in conclusion, et cetera, et cetera, at all, is that the aspects of this law, which are positive, came about due to haunting. Yeah. Like, this is really an example of how hauntology and haunting and the dead continue to live with us to this day and not in a passive Mm -hmm. way in a way that can be actively deployed for important movements and even if that didn't end up being as power like nearly anything like what it would need to be to satisfy our moral ethical requirements for what the law does Mm -hmm. i think that it's still a fascinating example of how ghosts and haunting have very real world effects regardless of the truth value of like you know something we don't try we try not to touch on on the podcast but like regardless of the truth value of whether there actually are like in this case there's not even a claim that these ghosts are haunting the people it's just the threat of that that Mm -hmm. is able to create it you know what i mean it's the belief Mm -hmm. that this is possible not even the belief that's that it's happening like at that level of abstraction hauntology still Mm -hmm. works Absolutely. I think that's a really beautiful close. I'm very satisfied with that. Thank you for that. Great episode. uh, Closing. That's exactly right. Um, Thank you guys so much for listening. We love you. We love you.